Good morning. It is good to be with you. I do love preaching from the book of Romans for a number of reasons, not least of which is the sermon basically writes itself. Um, but I love it because one of, the, one of the beauties of the book of Romans is that, uh, and not a lot of people realize this, this book is a fundraising letter. I and mean, this is a missionary fundraising letter. I, I don't know about you. I, I've been a missionary. Uh, I served in Bogota, Colombia for three years. And uh, it's, it's one of those uh, fascinating things every time I come to the book of Romans to realize that this is a fundraising letter from a missionary telling the church in Rome, hey, I need to raise some money, but since you guys don't know me yet, let me tell you what my gospel is. It's, it's, an amazing, it's an amazing fundraising letter, um, and one of those ones that I don't think we often get in the mail from our missionaries these days. Uh, the, the passage that we're looking at today is, is a unique passage. It sits at this transition point, uh, whereas the passage immediately before it, the, the first part of this uh, chapter, is looking at a relativistic morality, a moralism that is uh, relativistic and a truth that is relativistic, the passage that we have here today, that, that the, the people to whom Paul is addressing his message today are religious folk, uh, people who believe in objective truth. This passage concludes... Uh, and, and begins the conclusion of Paul's uh, thought about the universality of sin. And he starts to hint here at the cure for it. Before we jump into this passage, let us go before the Lord one more time in prayer, asking for him to guide us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do come to you today thankful thankful for your many gifts that you have given us. We, we thank you for promising to meet us here in this place through your word. Fulfill this promise today through the work of your spirit. May we see and hear Jesus. Open our ears to hear your word. Open our hearts to receive it. Open our hands to do that which your word calls us to do. For we pray all of this, trusting in the name of your Son and in the power of your Spirit, who live and reign with you, one God, always and forever. Amen. They said it could never happen. They said it was as safe as house. They, they said it was unsinkable. So confident were they that they only provided enough lifeboats for half the passengers. Any more, they said, would be a waste of space. But unfortunately for them and for 1,500 other people, they were tragically wrong. On April the 15th, 1912, while on its maiden voyage, the Titanic struck an iceberg in the middle of the North Atlantic at the speed of 22 knots. And within three hours, the ship had sunk without a trace. The motto, you can never be too careful, 
when lives are at risk. You can never be too sure. It's human nature, isn't it, to misplace our trust, to to put our our sense of security in the wrong places. We've heard people say, and perhaps you've even said it yourself, it can never happen to me. It, it, It couldn't happen to us, only to be proven wrong by events. Feeling safe doesn't always mean that we are safe. And what's true of journeys across the Atlantic is also true of our journey through life. In the opening chapters of Romans, Paul is spelling out the bad news. So we can get to the good news in chapter 3. And in, clo- and in this closing section of, of chapter 2, Paul turns his attention to those who think that, moral, uh, that they are morally respectable. The, 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 these, are, these are people who think moral respectability will allow us to avoid God's wrath. And, and, and now, in the passage that we have before us, Paul turns to those who think that religious respectability will do the same. He he sets his sights, his his sights are trained on that form of self-righteousness that is often connected with some form of religious affiliation. And thus, in verse 17 of chapter 2, he says, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God... You see, here at at this point in Romans chapter 2, Paul is not addressing the good humanist or or the good pagan, but the religious person, and particularly the Jews. They they relied on their religious biblical heritage. They uh, They comforted themselves with the thought that they had the religious connection, that they would be saved from God's judgment because they were religiously affiliated And just as the Jews back then believed that, so many people in our churches think the same thing. Will I go to heaven? Well, of course I will. I go to church. Will I go to heaven? Well, I've been baptized, so of course I will. Will I go to heaven? I'm an evangelical. Of course I will. And Paul here says in this passage, no, your religiosity cannot save you any more than your morality can save you. If you think it will, then you are the spiritual equivalent to a passenger on the Titanic. You may feel safe. You may even feel good. But that is no guarantee that you are safe. Sometimes that that feel-good feeling... The feel-good factor can, can dilute a person into thinking that they're, uh, into, into what, uh, believing that their status before God, their position before God is good. Now, why is that? How, 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 can, how is it that, the relig- that religion can deceive us into thinking that we are safe when in actuality we are not? Well, Paul here makes a series of indictments. First, he says that religion is often unfaithful faith. That that is, what Paul is saying here is that religion oftentimes breeds hypocrisy. Look, Look what he says in verses 17 to 22. He says, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law 
and boast in God and, and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, and then you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Will, will you preach against stealing? Do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? What is Paul saying here? What, what is he speaking about here? Well, he's, he's speaking about a distortion in, religious, in true religion. You see, the Jews had in their possession the law of God. And because they had the law of God, they had a great responsibility. In fact, the law, the Old Testament says over and over again that they were to be a light to the nations. But the trouble was that instead of producing an attitude of humble gratitude to God, they had the exact opposite happen to them. The Jews saw themselves as superior to others. Their religion became an opportunity for self-centered pride and arrogance. God's blessings were such that they thought, we are the people. They boasted in themselves. And, and this religion that they preached was, about, uh, was not about God, but it became a religion that was about them. It, it became a religion that was, that was more about them and their greatness than it became a religion about God. And such a religion puts me at the center and, and not God. It becomes a platform from which we preach ourselves. It is a, a religion, a religious form of selfishness. It is hypocritical to say that we preach ourselves. And it becomes a form of, of self-promotion and self-fulfillment. Do, do we think of ourselves as better than others? That's arrogance. That's conceit. And this is what Paul puts his finger on here. He warns us that it can breed a dangerous complacency about our status before God. There is no room in true religion for a smug self-satisfaction. If we really know something about God's grace in our lives... We will not be drawn to think much of ourselves, but instead we will think much of God and his grace and his love. Remember Paul's words to the Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone, what? Lest anyone boast. So, so there is this real danger, and, and Paul highlights it here. He, he, he highlights this real danger with religious affiliation. Religious connection that is about serving others, or that's about serving ourselves, and not about serving God. A religion that is unfaithful faith. A religion that is hypocritical faith. However, it's not just hypocrit hypocritical faith that Paul is uh, pointing at. It's not just hypocritical faith that, that, that Paul is aimed at. It, it's not just unfaithful faith that, that Paul is speaking of here. There is a second danger that Paul brings up here, and it's an idolatrous faith. 
As I studied this passage, and I don't know if it, as you were reading this passage, if, if it struck you, but, but as I was studying this passage, everything in this, in this passage made sense. I, I, I understood what Paul was doing until I got to one phrase. Notice what he says there at the end of verse 22. He says, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? I mean, that's... That should stop us. We, we, we should go, wait, this makes no sense. Paul is talking to the Jews. I mean, surely, the, I mean, these are the, these are the Jews. They, they're fastidious about idolatry, aren't they? It, 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 in fact, if we go and start searching the records, there is no evidence that, that I could find. I mean, perhaps there's a New Testament scholar here that could point out to me that I'm wrong. But there's no evidence that I could find that Jews in the Greco-Roman period in Rome were actually going in at night and stealing things from temples. Like, oh, hey, we're going to steal their little idols. So what in the world is Paul talking about here? I mean, you need to remember that Paul was a man who, who knew what he was talking about. He, Paul was a man who, who understood the Jewish people. He, he was a super Pharisee after all, wasn't he? I mean, remember what he says in Philippians. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul, Paul knew more about what it meant to be religiously committed than we can imagine. Yet he knew how easy it was for those who were religiously committed to be idolaters. So, so what is Paul doing here? Well, Paul is, is not speaking literally, but metaphorically. What, what Paul is saying here is that it's easy for you to live, to say you live for God when in actuality you aren't living for God. In reality, you're living for money or power or status. Paul is trying to show us the way in which the law isn't just about what we do on the outside, our outward practices, but the law goes to the inner life. I mean, this is what Jesus gets at, isn't it, in the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus, we've all heard what Jesus says. He says, you've heard it said, do not murder. What does he say? But I say, don't even hate your brother. You've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. I say, don't even look at another person lustfully. What's Jesus showing us when he says this? What's, what's Paul getting at here when he says, you who, uh, uh, who abhor idolatry, do you not rob, rob temples? What, what, are, what are they getting at? Well, they're getting at the, the fact that the law doesn't just forbid behavior, but it's calling forth a virtue, Where does murder come from? Well, murder comes from resentment. So Jesus says, look, you all have some sort of resentment in your hearts. And that right there is the seed for murder. So what what does Jesus say? He says, love. When the Bible says don't steal, it it is getting at envy and, and calling forth generosity. When it condemns adultery, what is the Bible doing? It's, it's not just condemning adultery, but it's calling forth fidelity in all of our relationships. Thus, when we read the law or, or hear Jesus' words, you have heard it said, but I say to you, our response should be, oh man, no one lives up to this. 
And yet we want other people to live up to this. As I was preparing this sermon, I ran across an article written by a professor at a public university in the U.S., a, a woman by the name of Virginia Stem Owens. She, she uh, was a Christian and had her English class read the Sermon on the Mount as, as part of their uh, first-year English course. It, it was a really fascinating uh, uh, assessment and, and assignment, and, and the responses from the students were fascinating because almost the entire class hated it. One of the students said, I do not like the Sermon on the Mount. It made me feel bad because I'm not perfect and no one is. Another student said, The thing asked in the Sermon on the Mount are absurd. To look at a woman is idolatry. That is the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement I have ever heard. Here's the thing. We all want to live in a place where people live serving others. Thinking of others' needs above themselves. We we all want to live in a place where we are caring for the least and the last in our society. We, We want to live in a place where where everyone is absolutely honest and keeps their promises. We want to live in a society like that, but we don't want to do it ourselves. Hearing this makes me feel bad. This is hypocrisy. This is idolatry. That's what's on display in this passage. When I was first starting out in ministry, I would often think that anyone who had a Bible or could uh, could talk to me about theology must be a Christian. Everyone who said that they were an evangelical had to be a Christian. But the longer I have been in ministry, the more I have realized that this is not true. Paul Paul knew more than most what religiosity looked like. Paul knew more than most what it meant to be religiously committed, but say one thing and do another. He knew what it meant to say you were living for God, but in actuality living for yourself. Sometimes we blaspheme God's name by failing to live and witness as we should. There is no hypocrisy. There is no idolatry like church hypocrisy and church idolatry. We can surround ourselves by the, by the trappings of Christianity. We can attend to church. We can be on committees. We can lead music. We can be elders. We can be here for everything that the church has going on. But if it's all on the outside, it's little more than a sham and idolatry. We can have all the right language We can read all the right books. We can give every outward indication of the devoutness with our hearts, uh, with our hearts still a cesspool of filth. 
Paul says to us what John the Baptist said so long ago, bring forth the fruit worthy of repentance. God is interested in changed lives and changed hearts, not a show of religion. So Paul points us to the cure. Look how close, how he closes out this passage. He says, religion can often be superficial. He says, religion, uh, religious forma- uh, formalities without personal spirituality is absolutely useless. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. You see, at, at this point, the Jewish people believed that circumcision would keep them from hell and guarantee eternal life. Paul here is saying that is not the case. He says that without the inner reality of the outward sign of the covenant, without the inner reality, that outward sign of the covenant is empty and meaningless. It is an external and formal mark if it's not accompanied by anything uh, real internally, and thus it is just a sham. What Paul is saying to Jewish people here, he could repeat to us. Just as you couldn't be a real Jew if you were only one outwardly, so you cannot be a real Christian if you are just one outwardly. The outward sign of baptism is ultimately no good if there is no real reality, if there's no internal reality. Yet even today, there's a, there's, a tr- there's, a, there's a temptation in us to put our trust in these outward signs. I, I've been baptized. I read my Bible every day. I take communion. Religious formality cannot make you a Christian. Only a personal relationship with Christ can do that. Formality without spirituality is useless. So what is our hope? Is there any hope? If there is a divine judge, what is the hope for us? And the heart of the cure that Paul puts before us is found in verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. See, Paul is saying that the only hope that we have is a new heart. What is he talking about? Well, you see, circumcision was this right. It was this right that showed that you and your family have a covenant relationship with God and that you are obeying his law. The problem was that we read in verse 17, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, the problem wasn't obeying the law. It's good to obey the law. The problem is law relying. If you rely on the law, I'm a good person, I do good things. Law relying is the problem because we're always then going back and forth 
between a sense of superiority and a sense of inferiority. If we rely on the law, we'll, we'll go back and forth between feeling a bit like a failure all the time or, on other days, feeling better than everybody else. You need to have something that you don't have, Paul says. So what's the cure that Paul prescribes here? He says circumcision of the heart. That can only come from something, uh, that can only come from uh, relying on something that is other than the law. And what do we rely on? Well, it goes back to our understanding of circumcision. I'm sure you all have, have heard huge talk about circumcision before. Circumcision is this, was a symbol of the uh, uh, Old Testament covenant curses. It was a symbol of, of the curse that, that is brought with covenant breaking. If, if we think back to Genesis chapter 15, Abraham participates in this covenant ceremony where he cuts animals in half. And, and unlike in our day and age where if you want to enter into a contract with somebody, you just sign the contract. In, in this day and, a, in, and that day, when you wanted to enter into a covenant with somebody, you didn't sign a contract, but you walked through these pieces of animals. And, and, and as the parties walked through the animals, they were saying, if I don't fulfill my end of the covenant, may this happen to me. May I be cut in half. May I be cut to pieces. May I be cut off. The striking thing about Genesis chapter 15, when we, when we go and see this ceremony made, this ceremony uh, participated in, Abraham has, has cut these animals in half. And God causes a deep sleep to fall on him, and the only one to walk through it is God. What God says at that moment as he's making this covenant with Abraham is, is if I am not faithful to this, may I be cut off. God is acting out the curse of the covenant. Circumcision was like that. It was, a blo- it was bloody and it was meant to remind us of being cut off. God was saying with circumcision that if we take on the law, but we don't follow it, the curse of the covenant is to be cut off. So what's the hope for us? What is the cure? If this is the case... On Judgment Day, we are all going to be cut off. But Paul tells us something in Colossians chapter 2. He says, In him, in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Paul says two amazing things there that that, that apply to our passage here. The first thing he says is is that when Jesus was on the cross, he was actually being circumcised. It it was bloody, and, and he was being cut off. This is what Isaiah chapter 53 is getting at when it says, he was cut off from the land of the living. 
What Paul is saying there is that Jesus did that for us. He took the curse so that we wouldn't have to. The second thing that Paul is saying here is that in him, we are the circumcision. He is saying that, that all Christians, male and female, have already been through the judgment. In Jesus Christ, we have been through judgment day. In my teenage years, I started to uh, read a lot of theology, and one of my favorite theologians at, at the time was a, a man named Jonathan Edwards. Uh, Edwards was a famous 18th century American theologian and preacher. On, on July 8th of 1741, he preached this famous, his most famous sermon. He preached a sermon to a very respectable group of church-going folk. They were very religious. And the sermon he preached was a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And this is what Edwards says. I'll read a portion of it. He says, Your wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead. And to tend downward with great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf. And all your righteousness would have no influence to hold you up and keep you out of hell. And then a spider's web would have to, uh, uh, no more influence than a spider's web would have to a falling rock. He, he goes on to say this. He says, The God who holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some lo- loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His, his wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince, and yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into fire every moment. It is as it was in the days of John the Baptist. The axe is in an extraordinary manner laid at the root of the trees, that every tree which brings forth good fruit May be hewn, uh, which, brings, which brings not forth good fruit, may be hewn down and cast into fire. Therefore, let everyone that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. That, that sermon that Edwards preached on that day in July, 1741, precipitated a, a mass revival in New England. His congregation felt utterly condemned by the word of God. They were driven to cast themselves upon the one who was cut off in their place. Our being here today means nothing if we do not have a real spiritual response in our souls. Formality is useless ultimately. You must be born again. No man is a Jew if you are just one outwardly. If the absence of the Holy Spirit 
uh, of the work of the Holy Spirit is, is uh, if, you, if you do not have the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, you are still under the judgment of God. We must call on the one who, who took the place for us, who, who took on that judgment for us. All too often we think of, uh, of this, all too often when we, when we think of our, our sin, we flatter ourselves like passengers on the Titanic. It could never happen to me. Don't let your religious background lull you into a sense of security. Don't be satisfied with anything less than a a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus has come, and he was cut off for us sinners. Even religious sinners might find pardon and peace. My... my, my, uh, My prayer is that we, we flee the wrath to come. The, the gospel is not just a message for atheists and pagans alone. It is a message for us religious people here. Flee to Christ for he alone provides shelter from the storm. He alone is our hiding place. Uh, there, there was a poem found on a, on a captured soldier during the American Civil War. He, he was ultimately executed. This is, this is the poem. Hail, sovereign love that first began. The scheme to rescue fallen man. Hail, matchless, free, eternal grace that gave my soul a hiding place. Against the God who rules the sky, I fought with hand uplifted high. Despised the mention of his grace, too proud to seek a hiding place. Enwrapped in thick Egyptian night and found, fond of darkness more than light, I madly ran the sinful race, secure without a hiding place. But thus the eternal counsel ran. Almighty love, arrest that man. I felt the arrows of distress and found I had no hiding place. Indignant justice stood in view. To Sinai's fiery mount I flew, but justice cried with frowning face, This mount is no hiding place. Ere long a heavenly voice I heard in mercy's angel's form appeared who led me with gentle pace to Jesus Christ, my hiding place. Should storms of sevenfold vengeance roll and shake this earth from pole to pole, no flaming bolt could daunt my face, for Jesus is my hiding place. On him almighty vengeance fell that must have sunk a world to hell. He bore it for a chosen race and thus became their hiding place. A few more rolling suns at most shall land me safe on heaven's coast. There I shall sing the song of grace and see my hiding place. Friends, is Jesus Christ your hiding place today? In that famous allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, we find Pilgrim arriving at the at the at the gates of the new Jerusalem. And he's eager to find out the fate of one of his fellow travelers whom, whom he was sure he would find at this new city. 
And what he finds out is that for this one, it had been a show and a sham. And Pilgrim says simply, Then I saw that there was a way to hell, even from the gates of heaven. We might say it could never happen to me. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. There is no way to escape judgment. There is no way, there is, no, there is only one way to avoid hell. And the only way to escape judgment and to avoid hell is through faith in Jesus Christ. The one who did not avoid God's judgment on the cross, the one who bore hell for sinners on the cross, the one who was cut off that we might live. Faith doesn't mean a, a vague belief in God. It means that we give him everything. All that we have and all that we are So this day, flee to Christ. Give him your life. We all need a hiding place. Make sure you have Jesus. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let him who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says to his church. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your Son, who is our hiding place. We confess that all too often... We, we put our faith in those things that will not sustain us. All too often we misplace our faith. So Lord, lead us to our hiding place. Cause us to find shelter in the shadow of your wing. May we look to Jesus and cry to him this day. We pray this in the precious name of our Lord and Savior. Amen.